99% of the people that will use iPads for medical reasons will shut off all the other things that the iPad can do. In this case, they left it all there. And they actually, during the training, showed grandma how to message and how to do email. And so she walked around with that device all because, you know, a lot of times these are critical patients and they can't really walk around and it became their lifeline. So of course they're going to put in their vitals. And so I think these, these, uh, behavior things that you're talking about are, um, something that we historically haven't realized is, is as important as, as whatever physical treatment we, we give. Welcome to Message Engineer for the MedTech Startup. Do you want a clear message that resonates, compelling message that scales, competitive message that nails your unique value? On this show, we interview guests across medical device disciplines to help you communicate and message powerfully. Your host, Maureen Schaefer, is a three-time vice president of marketing with 30 years of experience creating money-moving messages from startups to IPO and beyond. Here's your host, Maureen Schaefer. Welcome to the Message Engineer Podcast. We are delighted to have with us today James Jordan. He is a healthcare and life sciences expert. He is also a distinguished service professor of healthcare and biotechnology at Carnegie Mellon University's Heinz College. He's a president of Stratactic. He's a national co-chair at the Bio Bootcamp and the founder of healthcaredata.center. He was previously a senior vice president of a $3 billion division of McKesson, the VP of marketing at Johnson & Johnson, and before that held positions at Becton Dickinson, BD, and Boston Scientific. So welcome to the Message Engineer Podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so we like to start with something we call define the word warm up. And so I'll offer up a, a couple of words and I look forward to hearing how you define them. So the first word near and dear to my heart is message or messaging. Making the complex simple, I think would be the, the challenge of, of messaging. That would be my definition of that. Great, succinct answer. <laughs> Marketing. Marketing is uh, demand generation and uh, intimacy with your customer to be able to deliver everything that they need, which is generally more than just the product. That is very, very true. Uh, and then one that I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about because you have a book about it uh, is commercialization. Well, I break that up between big companies and small companies. So um, when, when you write a book, you always end up in a place that you never thought of. And in the spirit of startups, there's a simultaneous equation of balancing the customer, the investor, and whatever would make a liquidity invest for the investors, which could either be you know publicly traded company or a, uh, a merger and acquisition, which is very different from a big company. We just have the joy actually years later of just focusing on the customer and the you know company kind of finds the money and takes care of the other details. Yeah, it is very, it is, Definitely very, very different for kind of big companies versus small companies. So I'm glad uh, you're kind of talking about that difference. And I think um, one of the things that I wanted to talk a dig a bit more into is messaging. And when you look at the proliferation of AI, right? I mean, 
You'd have to be living under a rock to not have heard of ChatGPT at this point in time, right? And then there are many, many other AI helpers, if you will, um, in kind of the marketing messaging space. I'm wondering as you think about that, you know, what do you think are some of the things that are going to be happening in 2023 and kind of beyond um, with kind of messaging and the influence of AI? So I can tell you how I'm using it. So when you asked me your three definition questions, I, I had a bit of a panic. <laughs> and it's because I married a uh, master's in Carnegie Mellon for professional writing and, a, and an undergraduate in rhetoric. And when I first started dating my wife, she would say, well, what do you mean by that word? And I realized, you know, we walk through life with these generalities of what we perceive words to be. So I've become um, trained on looking up words and, and, and finding the details. And so when I think the downside of the chat GPT and the messaging is, is having vanilla messaging. And I think we see the AI tools that are picking up on that. Um, but I think the future is taking, uh, for those of us who are a little more complex in our messaging, so I'm a very detail-oriented person and I find, you know, I started my career in finance, but I call it a product management mentality. A product manager has to know every single detail of their marketplace and the toggle switches that make it make it turn. And we just spoke a moment ago, a lot of the attributes that delight customers have nothing to do with the product, right? So it, it's it's uncovering that. And so that's my, my skill. My challenge is always converting that to a simple message. So I have probably saved my wife hours and hours by using ChatGPT and Jasper and helping me simplify the, the messages. And we were talking about the startups, particularly a customer message, an investor message, an acquirer message are also very different messages. And so a lot of times where startup companies fail is they get focused on that customer message and they don't realize that the investor is very interested in making sure the product works and the customer is going to be delighted and buy, but they also want to know that you're going to get a good return and you're going to exit. And the acquirer is very interested in either how you're going to bring them into a new category or how you're going to collapse their value chain or, or bring them a cost advantage, uh, how they're going to leverage their sales force or get them into a new market. And so I think, um, those messages are really, really important to understand. And I think some of the things that these AI tools are doing is bringing forth to some of our um, younger startups that, that might not be quite skilled yet and, and understanding messages is saying, hey, what about this message? You're not talking about this message. And so I think in that case, it's, it's very helpful. Yeah, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. And I I love that your your wife is very kind of specific about words and use of words. So if you read, and, and I, I have to get this because it's just humorous. Um, in the dedication of my book, I basically said, you know, to my wife, Marcy, with her love, my life is unshakable. Uh, but without her talent, this book would be completely unreadable. And so <laughs> <laughs> I... I have uh, saved that woman hundreds of hours with some of these these tools. But I think that the downside of those, these tools is it's so easy to create a vanilla messages and it's so easy. I belong to the um, a group, Cancer Prevention Research Institute of Texas, where they have an advisory board and they invest a lot of money into startups. And we had a recent dialogue on how easy it would be 
for someone to put in a proposal that sounds completely smooth and 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 supported and the question is is as folks who have to do due diligence on this where where now is our obligation right what, what do we have to what do we have to check for sources because if you do i always if i do use chat gpt for something i always ask it to cite the sources and then i always go help look them up but I know certain students aren't doing that, right? And so the question is, where's the, how much time does the professor or, you know, other authorities that are doing budgets, you know, National Institute of Health, things like that, these are going to be, you know, interesting challenges. But I think the, the long-term benefit is, is pretty significant. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you bring up some really interesting questions, particularly as it relates to citations and what are the sources that it's using. And my son is... 12. Uh, and one of the things I've told him when I have him make, he'll say, I want to do, they're never small things. <laughs> I want to do this. I'm like, write a proposal. And he'll do it. And in the last year, I've said, you need to include citations and they can't be Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that that's, that's critically important, right, for due diligence, for medical public, right, for anything that's out there, whether it's on the internet or in a proposal, you have to kind of drill down to find out what's the foundation, what's it based on, is it solid? And I think there's uh, other tools that are helpful too. I remember um, helping my uh, daughter, Danielle, when she was younger, she had to make a brochure for uh, Pittsburgh for school. And so we used a, uh, I found that she was drilling in on a lot of stuff that she was able to find on the internet. And so we actually ended up making a mind map with all the things that she wanted to say and all the evidence she had to gather. And what that simple tool availed to her is you're all excited because you're getting a lot of stuff on the internet for this piece, but all this is empty. And so um, I think these are tools and disciplines that, um, you know, our kids need to, our kids need to learn. And, you know, we used to have to go to the library to find this stuff and, and, and now it's out there, but that doesn't mean that everything on the internet is true. And it's really important to be able to cite something. And, you know, if you have, um, you've written stuff, I've written stuff. And if you're putting out in the public, you're really, really paranoid about something. And uh, I've run even my own stuff through plagiarism checker frequently. And, and I had a, a a blog I had put out on cybersecurity and precision medicine several months back. And um, I used, uh, there was some great resources from, from AT&T and I had been very careful to cite things and I ran it through and there was like one thing that could possibly um, be of concern. So I just rewrote the whole thing and I, I recited something and lo and behold, the, the VP of AT&T cybersecurity reached out and said, excellent article. And I could imagine like, you know, I could have plagiarized, if that, that was the source, I could have run the risk of plagiarizing. So it's really important, right. I think. It's a great, it's a great point to run anything you write, blog post, et cetera, through plagiarism checker to make sure that you're not somehow inadvertently pulling yeah. something. But you know, the most exciting moment when you have plagiarism and it's your own work. That's really, you know, when you bring... <laughs> you know you fully learned something when you're like, yes, yeah, not other people's words, right? You're on the right track. There are a couple of interesting things you, you mentioned in there, and one of which was precision medicine. And yes. uh, I, I listened to, I was listening to a podcast last night, and they were talking about a journal article. And so precision medicine and a lot of kind of AI in medicine, I see as being able to 
tell us more faster about um, about people and treatments and kind of paths for people, particularly those with rare diagnoses or rare diseases. Um, I'm wondering what you see is kind of the best intersection, you know, what the best intersection of AI and precision medicine is, because they were talking about this article where they're trying to take the data on an individual, not the big data set. Right. The big learning data set, but the data on an individual. And was that meaningful enough when you're looking at kind of time-bound things like an EKG where they might have certain things going on, right, that they're a little bit out of bounds, but you're really looking for their, them to, are they moving off their baseline, right? And is there value in that? And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about precision medicine. Yeah, and maybe if I can sort of set up the bigger picture and how precision medicine fits in, because um, consultants love to change the words to rebrand, right? And so yeah. now people are talking about um, artificial intelligence medicine. And so I was just clarifying that for someone the other day. So the, the biggest picture is we have digital health where we're going to try to have a snapshot of all the consumer stuff off your watch, you know, right into your, your medical records. That would be the goal. And then artificial intelligence medicine would be using artificial intelligence, machine learning, neural networks to um, avail. If, if you're a statistician, you talk about the tails of the distribution, right? The little, the little anomalies that happen that you can only get through volume. And so I think what artificial intelligence will do is, is help us understand that. And so precision medicine and uh, personalized medicine are often frequently used the, the same, but they're, they're actually kind of close cousins. So I look okay. at precision medicine as what I would call statistical grouping, right? That, that you know, I'm in this, this population that probably this is the best treatment. Personalized medicine would be something that would be very specific to your genes. And it's not that we don't have any out there. You know, you might have a, a gene therapy for sickle cell anemia or something like that that's very specific. But I, I think when people are talking about precision medicine and artificial intelligence, I often say, you know that whack-a-mole game that you see at carnivals? You just sitting there whacking that mole, right? I love that. And what you're doing is you're taking your energy and your focus to to beat the mole down because you you don't actually have any systems that give you the statistical behavior of that. And so I think in healthcare, what we're trying to do is is replace all that energy and focus to whack those moles and and find a way, because our system just doesn't have the resources to do it, find a way to have technology tell us when there's a variance. And one of the companies that I've worked with, and, and I used to work for a, a nonprofit venture firm we invested in, it's called um, Ariel Therapeutics, and they focus on pancreatitis. And pancreatitis is, uh, if, if not treated, can end up in, in pancreatic cancer. And I think everyone knows how, how bad that is. And so I could have the gene or I could have, you know, uh, a psoriasis and you would go to your primary care physician and he'd say, hey, slap some cream on it, right? But for me, that might mean that there's some milestone that's happening and there's some intervention that can happen. And so I would, the system would allow a primary care physician who's probably managing, you know, two to 5,000 patients with all sorts of different diseases to say, okay, this person came in, you took an inventory of their status, and there was something in the status that is unique for their state and maybe not yours. And I think that's that's the value of where we're going. 
and they take that information if they can plug it into a closed loop system. So we'll talk about closed and open systems in a second. Is that if I collect that data, the, the company that has proposed these algorithms have said, you know, here's here's part one, two, three, four, five, six, seven interventions that we can anticipate. But but over time, as they collect real real life data, they can find out that there's a 1.5 and a 2.3. Now, where I think you know, like IBM Watson said it could solve things like this. Um, you need physicians and scientists to go in because all the system can tell you is there's a point here at 1.5 that, you know, people are coalescing around. It can't tell you what, what that is, what it means or what to do about it. It's just telling you that it's there. Right. And so this company could take that, that information and go back and, and deploy those models. And I think it's particularly helpful in rural medicine. You know, we're starting to, have our big cities have centers of excellence. We have physician shortages. And so there's more patients than there are, you know, doctors in these rural settings. And it's important to be able to, you know, get as much knowledge and help to them as, as can possibly be had. Now, my closed loop comment was this company decided to go after pancreatitis because it was a, a discrete database. It was closed and it was, um, a disease that had had um, structure to it. The databases had structure to it. So that's where we are right now. We're going into, you know, the imaging systems in hospitals. We're going into these little places. And so these bigger visions, we're, we're far from it. And it's simply because we don't have the data structures that are standardized across our hospitals. And we also don't have them standardized across, you know, consumer to, you know, retail. And I think, this, I don't know if you're familiar with the international classification of diseases, but if you're just for yeah. your audience, the Very. <laughs> uh, United Nations came up with a structure, right? That said, we want to track mortality and morbidity. And, mm-hmm. and um, they, they, they gave it to the World Health Organization to manage. And the most recent version of that is 11 that was recently approved. And uh, there's a company called, or a nonprofit called SNOMED that tries to standardize medical technology and so the ICD mortality morbidity came together with the clinical terminology and they put it together in a structure that's designed for digitization. Now the, uh, the U S hasn't quite committed to when it's going to do it. So let's yeah, say, on, you know, in the 10. next several years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but when that's in, when that's in the things that we're talking about will be able to be had. And we can see that companies are starting like Amazon, um, when standardization can happen, they can start bringing their talent to bear. And, you know, Amazon, I wrote a, a blog on Amazon particularly um, and comparing it to uh, Oracle. And, you know, Amazon had 25 years of successes and failures and, and figured out that they just can't take their business model and jam it into healthcare. And, you know, we all know what happened with Oracle and, and the Veterans Administration. Now, fortunately, they have time to recover but when we can standardize these bigger companies, because in healthcare, we think we're big, but the fact is that if Amazon and Oracle could, window, you know, windows of, of healthcare happen, there's all sorts of efficiencies and, and interconnectivity that can happen. I'm a big fan of Amazon. It's fascinating to watch what's happening on the kind of, whether you call it consumerization or retailization or Amazon's announcement, I think it was last week, maybe it was this week of, one medical, their announcement a couple of weeks ago of $5 a month for the 150 odd generic 
prescriptions like all in mm-hmm. $5 sweat yes. fee, no insurance yep. needed delivered to your doorstep. And they have such power on the logistics side. And, and we know they're really interested in home, right? There's this like moving hospital, moving hospital to home or moving. Yeah. It's something like that. It's a kind of a lobby group and Amazon mm-hmm. and Walmart and CVS and all the like folks you would expect to be a part of that. Amwell are part of that. And where do you think as, as let's say care transitions from, you know, we used to be inpatient, right? 20 plus years ago and then became more outpatient heavily and ASCs and it keeps moving into lower acuity settings, which patients generally prefer, which payers definitely prefer. Um, and there's, there's such a trove of potentially meaningful data that has yet to be really well understood um, or used um, in any kind of meaningful, kind of broader way. You know, where, what do you see as you kind of like look forward and you see like Amazon getting into health and the CVSs and the Walmarts and the Amwells and telehealth and AI and this whole home piece that's coming to bear? I mean, how, how do you yes. think about that? What do you, how do you extract data from that? Where do you think that's headed? So it, it's interesting because I think um, culturally we're doing, you know, in the past hundred years, a, a, a complete 360. You know, if you look at the history of physicians in the U.S. and where hospitals were, were really formed is hospitals were the, pla- were the place where family members went when their own family couldn't take care of them anymore. And that was sort of the historical basis of it. And as a result of that, you know, hospitals saw physicians as sales reps in the old days and would do a lot to get them to to come to their facilities and practice because they drew in, you know, they drew drew in the patients. But, you know, a lot of this was done at home. I mean, my grandmother lived with us when I was a kid and Dr. Wally still came to the house when my grandmother was in her 80s and, and would check up on her. Now, you know, that's not terribly long ago. And so I, I think that um, we're going to start asking ourselves when healthcare reform first started, there was a number that said 68% of the actionable health data is outside of the, the hospital system. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the point I think you're making, right? And so the question is, how can we use technology to intervene and get people to, you know, sort of change their behaviors at home or have other family members manage them? So what I see is... COVID actually unlocked some of the codes that insurers were inhibiting from this progress to be made, such as telemedicine. And I actually sat on a board of directors with an insurance company executive who said, when COVID's over, these codes are gone. And I said, they're never gone. You've opened up, you know, Pandora's box. Um, Patients no longer, you know, will will tolerate being queued around an office and going there for an hour. You know, they've used to waiting in their car, getting call, coming right in. Um, I think, you know, locally here in town, um, in the spirit of this this rural medicine and and centers of excellence, you know, University of Pittsburgh Cancer Center is is very renowned, and there is a, a wonderful story about a year ago in the paper here where they had sort of made a, call it a telemedicine hub. So their cancer patients needed to have certain tests done through nurses. So it's not something like we could just do it like you and I. And so 
this gentleman told the story. He's 82 years old. His, his wife's the same age. And, and it would take him two and a half hours to get to town to get their, you know, follow-up treatments. And um, these weren't their major treatments. These were just follow-up treatments. And they were like physically exhausted because they came in, they waited, and then they two and a half hour back. Sometimes they stayed overnight. And it was actually taking a toll on his, his recovery. You know, it was actually causing him exhaustion. And they set up the center where he could just go to. And it was basically a box with the equipment that, you know, UPMC Cancer Center needed them to do. And there's a, a nurse in there and they do their thing and they they went home in 20 minutes, you know. And, and so I think the cat's out of the bag. And, and as these consumer companies come in, I think we're going to have this. Um, my wife and I were talking about this. Should we, if we were called customers, or, and we, I think we sort of settled on the word client. She, you know. Um, because the client is someone you're intimate with, the customer is someone you sell to, I think was my wife's um, perspective on it. But I think that, you know, patients are, we're told what to do. And I think clients, it, it's a, it's sort of a relationship, right? It's a give and take. And I think that's where we're going. I also think the government, you know, there's a PACE program uh, for elder care where um, a organization can take sort of an accountable care view of elderly people and and take the money and have them at home and maybe have them come into a uh, an adult daycare kind of center for lack of a better word where they get checkups and you know there's social engagements and they go home at night and so i think um these things are going to continue to expand and go and i think we're going to have technologies that can support them so there's companies that have um the ability to attach i think it's the uh, pressure pad under the bed um, something on the oven or stove to see when it's turned on and off, uh, water running in the house. So, uh, water going out like toilets and water coming in and through it, they can create algorithms, how mom and dad are doing. And if you create these sort of mom or dad algorithms of when they generally move around and if they're not, you know, I can get notified on my phone that, you know, mom hasn't done what she was supposed to do today. Maybe I want to check in. And so that's a way of, of you know, putting the surveillance, using technology to put the surveillance back out onto the, the family members. Um, and I think the, these are the kinds of things we're going to continue to, to see. Yeah, that, yeah, absolutely. And it, it helps connect us in the kind of surveillance, helps connect us in different ways that hopefully work for, and I, hopefully work for everyone. I think it was really interesting, and I love words. Big fan of words. Um, it was the only time we were allowed as children to leave the dinner table, was to look a word up in the dictionary. The only time. Until we were excused. So it, it started early. It did. <laughs> the power of words. So uh, you used the term client, and so a lot of people move from the concept of patients, right, which sets up this odd hierarchy of things mm -hmm. and people um, to healthcare consumer, right? Which still doesn't get to the, that consumers, you know, we're buying things, we're spending money on things. Um, customer, like you said, is more sell, we're being sold to, like we have, somebody has an opportunity to make a dollar. And yes. the client, I love that idea of clients, we're like healthcare clients, right? So how well can you take care of me? How well can you take care of my family? How can you, right? Um, I think that's a really elevated way to think about um, 
people formerly known as patients. And I think and, there's there's profit in that mentality. I mean, they, they say the the average, you know, lifetime value of a patient to a health system can be as much as a, as a million dollars. The, the challenge that you have in one of the studies that I saw is that I could be with you for, you know, 25, 30 years. And then, you know, I have my heart attack and I go to the, the other hospital. And so, you know, it's it, clients have an, have an intimacy and, and they don't, you know, they don't leave, they stay. And, and so I think that's something that healthcare institutions are going to think about. You know, it's a, I have an old story. It's uh, I was with Boston Scientific at the time. And one of the great comforts of working for a J&J or a Boston Scientific is, you know, they basically have, they sell everywhere. And so their human resource departments do a great referral network if you have a, a family crisis kind of situation. And it's comforting because when you have a disease, you know, even, even though we're sort of pretty knowledgeable compared to most people, you know, lung cancer or something like that, you just can't find the information, you know, fast enough. So my aunt needed a, a valve replacement and she was at a little hospital where she was the equivalent of the elderly candy striper in, in Methuen, Massachusetts. And, and, a, and a, I think the hospital is called Holy Family and she needed a valve replacement. And so we hooked her up with the best valve guy in Boston and she would not go. She wanted to have it done in this little hospital. And to her, um, the procedure was, you know, if you take a piece of a pie, the procedure itself, uh, whereas my perspective would have been, it was like 99% of the pie. In her perspective, it was only 10% of the pie. It was that she knew people, she was comfortable, the parking was easy, you know, these other kinds of things. And we see this in, in Pittsburgh. Um, I grew up in Boston, but I've been in Pittsburgh for 15 years. And the, the, the locals here will joke about, you know, people that won't come over the bridge. And, and so there's these uh, minute clinics and medi, medi centers and stuff like that that have started to become um, the primary care for a lot of these, these folks. And I think you had a physician a few weeks ago that was talking about some of these things in one of your podcasts, I forget his name, but he was uh, talking about the, the, the changing of who's controlling these patients, right? And, and I think we're gonna find that the people that are focused on the home are going to actually not only capture great information, uh, if they treat these people right, they're going to create a lot of brand loyalty, which I, I don't think is the way that healthcare companies are thinking about it, but I think it's the way Amazon's thinking about it. That's a, yeah, that's a great point. I think there's a lot to be, yeah, my mother lives in a small country town <laughs> in Wisconsin near my sister. Um, even though we grew up outside of Buffalo. So not so far from Pittsburgh, actually. And uh, we uh, it took a long time, but I did convince her. <laughs> she has AFib, she's had an ablation, she has a pacemaker, there's a whole host of things. Um, but I have convinced her that when it's something serious that she needs to go to, you know, she's close enough to Milwaukee, to go to Frayer, yeah. to go to St. Luke's. Like, we love the small local hospitals and they're great for certain things. <laughs> well, and I but think so. Is. I did a, a strategic planning session with the nonprofit hospital system in Idaho. It was called uh, North Canyon Health System, I think was its name. And, you know, they're pretty rural. They're, they're two, two hours, I believe, outside of, of Boise. And they just do a great job at what they do a great job at. And they do even a better job at things they're they're not good at. So they've created a relationship with the Mayo Clinic that when 
they do have patients that have a situation like your mother did, they handle the concierge, the hoteling, everything. And so, you know, they just take care of it. And now again, it's a nonprofit. So these things, you know, they, they, this group was um, amazingly client centric. They were just a very, very special group. But I think these are the kinds of partnerships and relationships that we're probably going to see, you know, start changing. And then the question is, if you're, you know, as you mentioned, I work for McKesson and as a company that distributed almost everything, um, you know, distribution is not Jane J. Sexy, right? It's not making heart valves and different things like that. But, you know, the, the power that they have and the influence by building, doing something that maybe people don't think is important, but the customer does. Um, that's, that's where I think these people are going to gain leverage because they're very good at delivering quickly, you know, getting things done. Um, you, you know, you think of uh, specialty pharmaceuticals where you're taking, you know, maybe two separate drugs and you're mixing them together for cancer treatment. And when you mix them together, they're only good for 24 hours. I mean, that's, that's some quick movement, right? And so Marisol Bergen and, and, and McKesson mm-hmm. particularly are very, very good at that. And those skills are going to, cause they've learned how to, make money doing small things. And, you know, I always just to joke the difference between a um, medical device company at the time and a pharmaceutical company. So an SKU is like a stocking unit, right? So if you go into the store, every item you see, they call it an SKU. So in the medical device business, and I'm not don't hold me to these numbers, but it was something like, you know, 20 SKUs to make a billion dollars in revenue. And in the drug industry at the time, it was like 0.75. And so if you take a product manager in the medical device industry, they were responsible for a much broader uh, aspect of things than, say, in, in the pharmaceutical industry. And I think when you look at the McKessons or you look at the Amazons and those folks that can standardize on one hand and then be very intimate on another hand, is that's who's going to win. I find that whole space is, is fascinating. So taking kind of you know, what you're talking about with healthcare client, becoming clients of, let's say, healthcare systems or, you know, for example, and then really pulling that through to the kind of high expectations we've all come to have around delivery and service and applying that to healthcare. Uh, kind of the the last mile maybe in some ways well and Um, and you know a lot of times again it's not the the sexy things that can turn the dial so i have a a former colleague at mckesson he's the president of a company called symmetry rx or symmetry rx and and they work to coordinate drug samples and so their approach is making sure, and it certainly helped during COVID that people can get delivered, you know, the doctor's office can make sure that they get a prescription to their house where they can try something. And then if it's working, it's automatically organized for their their retail person. And the long story short of their data, and they're still a young young company, but the, the results of outcomes, the people sticking to their meds, because during that first two to three weeks, they were being treated very specially and a new habit takes a while to get going. And so it's not something that, you know, like I said, is, is, is not 
you know, intuitive surgical robotics in any, any sense of the imagination. But in terms of making outcomes, it, it is an intuitive surgical robotics. I think that's such a, that's such a great example because, I mean, I'm sure you've seen 10 times what I've seen as far as people trying to solve drug compliance, right, and pharmaceutical compliance. And it's always like some new bin or some new thing that spits out the pills or some kind of organizer or some kind of, right, as opposed to, hey, we're human beings and it's hard to form new habits. And well, and I, I be, behavior, habit, I think. Yep. Right? With, with relationships and connectedness, like it's, it's, it's very old school, right? Like old, old school. Um, but sometimes it's the simplest things that work best and not, you know, kind of the anti-technology pro-relationship method. So I have two stories around that. To absolutely true. So um, the, the first one is a McKesson story, and it's, it's probably a decade-old story, but I still think it's an amazing thing. Um, McKesson can sometimes... Uh, be a service organization to insurance companies. So in this particular case, the disease was congestive heart failure and they hired McKesson to, you know, sort of make pennies on the dollar and have these nurses call up and make sure people are weighing themselves and asking them this, this, this grouping of questions. And so uh, they did that for a period of time and the nurses on their own sort of realized that uh, they had scheduled, I think it was five to seven minutes for this. And they realized that if they knew Mrs. Jones's names and details and all that, they just started keeping notes. And so they were they were having some really good results. And McKesson has some of the biggest, you know, number of pharmaceutical people, pharmacists working for them. So they asked the pharmacists and the statisticians to come in. They're like, whoa, like the disease state for congestive heart failure can go from 64000 to a quarter of a million dollars per year for a patient, right? So now that we know how we're controlling it and we, we're in a tight standard deviation, maybe we change from a service company and we go to the insurers and say, how about if I take this disease off your hand for this, this price? And, and if you're the insurer who has this huge variability, you're like, yeah, I'll do that in two minutes. And what they learned the secret was is the nurses had teamed up. They made a personal relationship. And eventually Mrs. and Mr. Jones had figured out that they could have give their vitals and have a two or three minute exchange of data and then have a four minute visit or a seven minute lecture, right? And exactly to your point, and I can't remember this company's name, but it's, it's, it's in the Midwest, took it to the next level as they were doing something similar, but they were doing it with um, an iPad. And 99% of the people that will use iPads for medical reasons will shut off all the other things that the iPad can do. In this case, they left it all there. And they actually, during the training, showed grandma how to message and how to do email. And so she walked around with that device all because, you know, a lot of times these are critical patients and they can't really walk around and it became their lifeline. So of course they're going to put in their vitals. And so I think these, these uh, behavior things that you're talking about are um, something that we historically haven't realized is, is as important as as whatever physical treatment we we give. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, that is a 
That's a great story, and the idea of real, because I've seen those stripped down iPads. I've seen people do that, what you're talking about. Um, but if you want Mrs. Jones using the iPad, and you can show her how to actually talk to her grandchildren who will never pick up her phone call, right? Yes. <laughs> how to right. see her grandkids' pictures and, right, maybe watch her favorite movie. Uh, oh, yeah. All of a sudden, they're using it a lot more. It becomes an essential piece of what they're doing. Um, and uh, that's how we got our- And they're socialized too again, you know, as opposed to being lonely. And, you know, we had a, um, a couple across the street from us in their, in their 90s, and they've been together, you know, World War II kind of couple. And um, uh, she had passed and, and he was living in this house by himself. And his children taught him to use, you know, technology to stay connected. Because I think the other thing that's changed from maybe our parents' generation is a lot of us aren't living, you know, near where grandma and grandpa were. So I remember, you know, a big Irish Catholic family, you know, 40 cousins, nine children on my dad's side. And, you know, we would go to my grandmother's house and eat and destroy it every single Sunday. And so when she went into the nursing home, remember the, the nursing home people saying, oh, she's one person we'll never abuse because you guys are like an army. You're in here every single day. And I have my own podcast that we were talking about. And I was talking about um, this this issue to the the, uh, the executive director of this, uh, this nursing home chain. And they were saying, you know, one of the challenges is families are away now. And so they are figuring out ways. How do you stay and communicate? And how do you have the patients communicate with their family members? Because emotionally, it's really important. Yeah, definitely. I taught, I, I bought my mom an iPhone probably 12 years ago. She's 91 now. And uh, she was like, oh, I'm going to need a manual. You're going to need to show me how to use, she's going to need to write it down. And I'm like, you can't break it unless you drop it in the bathtub. Like, you can't break it. Like, press all the buttons. See what happens. Um, but she loved it for texting. I couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't make it over the email hill. That wasn't yeah. happening. I tried seven yeah. different ways. But texting made sense because she can see the other thing and then she can see what she writes. And it's it's the way that she keeps in touch with everyone. Like, hey, we can well, and I think in terms of healthcare and texting too. Um, so, you know, I have four daughters, and so, you know, they don't always tell dad how they're feeling, right? Um, Shocking. But it's amazing when they're texting me what they tell me, that they would never tell me in person. And so I was talking to a physician recently, and I was talking about the story, and he says, well, one of the things that we find about our online hubs and our messaging is people are more inclined to explain issues that they have than if they were in person. And I think about um, a, a situation uh that I witnessed it at Johnson and Johnson, we were doing a, uh, it wasn't my division. It was a, it was more of a, a urinary prod product for men, prostate issues that were having prostate issues. And so they had these 20 men in a room and they're trying to do this, you know, survey or asking them questions about their health and everyone's good. Everyone's great. But one gentleman came with his wife. And so she's looking around and we're behind the glass, you know, and you could see her looking around and she said, so none of you are having this issue. And then the husband sort of went like this, like, you know, I'm embarrassed I had the issue. And then everyone else in the room started talking about it. So I think that sometimes, you know, these messaging apps allow people to talk about things that they wouldn't 
necessarily say in person. And I think this data, I mean, we've done all sorts of studies, um, Heinz College partners with, you know, the local uh, hospital systems here on, on big data all the time because we have some of the, you know, the most amazing data scientists in the world. And the one thing that um, comes back time and time again is, is what people do and what they say they do are completely opposite. So I think we need these systems because a lot of times our care providers are, you know, trying to figure out things about what people say they do versus what they're really doing. Yes, and that it's interesting, yeah, what, what they actually do versus what they say they do, right, which can lead down the completely diff different path. Sure, and yeah, yeah. Develop things nobody needs. Um, and that kind of reticence to share really private information, particularly in older generations, right, much more private. Um, from that standpoint, I think is, yeah, I think that's really critical. And we used to- Well, and I don't know if it's private. I think like my dad didn't want to bother anybody. <laughs> you know, doctor would say, I'm doing great. And you go with them like, great. He's, you know, got these 10 things going on. And, and I think he's just, yeah, but you know, he's, the doctor's busy. It's like, well, no, he's here to help you. Um, right. But I also think this is a, a an interesting issue for the younger generation too, because- they're recognizing the permanency of, of this information. So um, I had a friend who had an anxiety attack um, several years ago, and he got cathed just to be careful because the doctor was, was a friend. And um, he didn't, doctor didn't want to put it in his medical record because he said, you know, someone's going to say you've got heart disease. And, and this was a young man at the time. And he was going through um, some stressful divorce situation and custody things with his children. And he said, you know, I don't want someone looking at your medical record on employment and saying, you know, you can't be a plant manager because it's a big pressure job. And mm -hmm. so I think, you know, the younger generation is also a little concerned about privacy. Um, whereas, you know, I think if you're, you're over 50, you're probably thinking by the time, you know, that permanent record comes, you're retired and it's not <laughs> so what, but I think, you know, if I'm 20, 30, 40 years old, I'm worrying about maybe some prejudice that could happen to me. And I think this is where the privacy and cybersecurity and the ethical considerations and discussions have to come in. You know, where, where do I need this? How do I need this information to do something that's actionable and helpful? And when can this information be, be hurtful? And, and I, so I think we're going to have this whole privacy conversation because, you know, maybe my employer shouldn't have that information. But if they're paying for the health plan, they're buying it, right? So, I mean, it's a real interesting conundrum. Yeah, I think that, yeah, that, be, that becomes that becomes challenging for a whole host of different reasons, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, in privacy and cybersecurity, and there's a lot going on, and the FDA has some new guidance out, um, new-ish for the FDA, at least, and guidance out on those things as well. And I think that... Um, but I've heard a lot of, at the MedTech conference um, in the fall, there was a lot of talk about cybersecurity and privacy. And, and this idea of consent kind of came mm -hmm. up, right? And, and we know what informed consent is, and we know what it means. And everyone, you know, anytime you're having a procedure done, you're basically saying anything. Anything could happen, including death. Just, you know, you have to sign it off. Um, but this idea of consent to the use of your information uh, consent to where it's used, how it's used, when it's used. Um, what do you see kind of on the 
horizon for that other than there's obviously a lot more attention on it. But I think from the from the healthcare client side, right, they want to be able to, the way they do is social, to be able to control or consent or control consent and those things. What kind of new bars does it or, or needs then do the medical device companies and other folks in kind of the medical area need to be thinking about that they haven't? So I think I, I think when the consumer companies plug in, there's going to be this huge bolus of security concerns. And we have concerns now in our healthcare systems, but our healthcare systems aren't interested in leveraging that information to you know, draw more profits out of you and other products that they sell. And so I don't think we're there yet. And, they, and you know, uh, my dean is Dean Krishnan. He's been at the White House. He's probably one of the brightest digital people around. And he constantly says that technology is, is always ahead of the laws and the regulation um, that, that support them, right? So, you know, we saw that with, uh, with the Uber cars here and, you know, when someone got hit, okay, who's responsible, what happened? And after, you know, all the analysis that was done, it, it looked like it was a pedestrian issue, not the, the car issue. But, you know, when we talk about Teslas and automatic cars, it gets into an accident. Is that something an insurance company handles or should that be Tesla, right? And therefore, should the price of your insurance be in the car? Are they going to be an insurer in the future? So I think these types of questions are going to absolutely come into um, healthcare. And so every time you make a connection to a new system, you have a fuzzy consent that you might not know where that information is going. and it's all worded in a way that's very complex and and you could actually be part of a system that has 10 micro consents that you're unaware of. And so I think this is all going to have to be uh, sorted and, and debated because it's a, it's a huge issue. Yeah, there's, yeah, no doubt. No, no doubt. There's a lot of complexity and uh, a lot of opportunity to do better in that regard. Um, I do want to circle to one thing and that is, uh, IP. So I found it really fascinating that um, you had a book on the intellectual property pyramid assessment, yes. a novel method for creating a sustainable competitive advantage. Uh, and I found that interesting because as part of my kind of the message engineer roadmap, one of the things, right, I talk unsurprisingly about this sustainable, like step number, I think eight, is like sustainable competitive advantage. And I talk about how IP is the best possible for a marketing message, best possible mm -hmm. marketing message. So if you can build the message that includes something that your company already has IP on, what's more defensible than that? Um, Correct. Or the basis Absolutely. of it. And so I found it really fascinating that, like, you know, like most other things, right, there's just nothing new. Well, I apparently so plagiarized you without realizing. So and what what I do is um, think of two organizational charts, right? CEO mm -hmm. and the top vice presidents. The the top one is how the market is structured, how you get there, do what you're doing, right? So I can, um, you know, you think of a, a drug eluding stent. You've got the the nitinol material. You've got a polymer that can absorb and elude the drug, and then you've got the drugs themselves. So those are sort of three different components. And then you have the ways of, of 
separating out the market, right? And every market has its its sort of boundaries. And so below it, you take another org chart, but you turn it upside down and see where the vice presidents cross over to these, these market needs. And so what you discover uh, very often is that there's things that you could connect just by looking at it that way that you were missing. And so I'll give a, I'll give a case in point. I was working with a company that um, had a, a, a bio valve. And so this is all protected now. And it's very hard to tell these stories because you know, all of them are sort of confidential, but this one's a simple one. It was basically the, the you know, there's a proprietary material and all that, which I won't get into, but at the end of the day, they had, the, they had this on a mandrel and they sprayed it and the sprayer went around the mandrel. And, you know, so you're working through this whole thing with them and you start saying, but what if I sort of stabilized the sprayer and moved the mandrel? And they're like, completely missed it, right? So I always say you want to stake a position that's impervious to competitive advancement. But at the same time, you know, market development is very, very expensive. And so uh, be thoughtful about who you potentially are inviting in to be first or second to market and how you can leverage them too, right? So when you're in a market development phase, you've heard the the term, you know, the tide rises all boats, that there's, you know, a lot of times to make some of these healthcare markets could be, you know, $100, $200 million investment to educate the market, put the infrastructure in place. And if that could be spread out over two or three companies versus one, that could be advantageous. And if I had 60% market share and the other 40 were split between the other two, but we all sort of shared in the market development, that's not a terrible thing. And so um, that IP pyramid can uncover situations like that. And the other thing it can uncover, kind of like that that brochure on a mind map exercise you and I were talking about, our my daughter, is, okay, but the market demands these five things. You've got four covered you're not addressing the fifth one at all. And is that because it's just technically impossible to address or have you not addressed it? And a lot of times, sadly, it's just no one has addressed it. And so um, I've had a lot of success with that model. And in fact, um, there's a company that Smith and Nephew bought that was, um, the company was called Bluebell Technologies and they were making a sort of a, a bone sparing um, knee surgery device, sort of like a CNC hand lathe. And all of a sudden, you know, the market had Smith and Nephew, you know, Depew, Johnson, you know, a lot of people interested in it. And all of a sudden, one of the companies uh, called them, which was ironically not the company that bought them. And so we got together and we ran the exercise. And of course, I, I can't be a technical expert in everything, so I don't pretend to be. That What you do is you try to get the technical team to break their own technology. And at first, you know, it takes an hour to get them into it. But once they get into it, it's amazing. And one of the, uh, in fact, he's, I think the number two guy here in Pittsburgh was with the Matthew. We're going through and he goes, oh, it's like, what? He goes, oh, we have a, um, this competitor has a, a vice president that has no managers and directors under it. And if he got some of our stuff, you know, that, that, they would be able to get to the market and they didn't have a two-way confidentiality agree agreement. And so they decided to delay the meeting, put a, a PCT in, uh, which is, you know, kind, kind of like a, a patent pending kind of situation so that when they went into that meeting, they were protected. And so it's a very interesting process. And, and sometimes, you know, um, 
I'm always amazed when I make mistakes is I don't follow my own processes, you know, and, and sometimes you get frustrated the processes take too long, but a good process is, is designed to make you think of, you know, the anomalies, the tail of the distribution, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think I, yeah, IP is so critical to the kind of value creation that needs to happen to get to exit kind of broadly, right? Lots of other things and have to happen. <laughs> And people leave it to the to the lawyers and they get mad that the lawyer bills are high. And then the lawyers are frustrated because they make the commitment and then they structure it all. And then the client will pull them away and go to a cheaper firm long term. So ironically, the, one of the groups that's uh, incredibly supportive of this is is the legal groups, because if, if I can prep their folks before they get to their legal you know, firm, um, they're a lot more well organized. It's it's and it's always cheaper for the company to do it. And the company has conceived of things or gaps that they have that you can't have a third. I mean, the intimacy of of people who've been working a problem for several years. Um, there's no way you can replicate that in a law firm, right? That so so this it's an important process. Anyways, it's 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 interesting. Always surprises me. Yeah. I think it's a it's a great point from the from the IP side um, with the lawyers to kind of take a look and the quarter chart internally, and take mm -hmm. a look at where the gaps are and mind map it out and a lot great actionable like strategies and things to do and and how to get this done which I I know everyone's going to find super helpful um, from that standpoint yeah there's there's I've I've not yet been at a firm or had a client. Where someone's not complaining about the legal it's just it's well, and I think for startups um, particularly, I do I do this um, disease state mapping exercise, and it's about you know the toggle switches. And so, if you're a medical device person, you sort of get it right. You've got prevalence and incidence and diagnosis rate and right. units per procedure, right? And at the end of the day, these are the things that switch the market. And so, in an early market. Um, do you want to fight a competitor or do you want to get more people diagnosed? And so I think in the early days of, of uh, carotid stenting, which is something I can, I can go to a mall and, and I can, you know, scan someone's neck and determine if they have plaque in it. And so one could say, hey, you're getting customers, but you know what, if that plaque lets loose, the cost to the person, the cost of the healthcare system is, is huge. So it's a win-win it's a for everybody. So should I be fighting someone else or should we be kind of making sure that no one has plaque in their carotids, right? And, 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 and you know, save the battle for, for later on. And I think- Expand the market. Yeah, so what I try to get companies to understand is, what is it you're doing here? <laughs> You know, do you want to take, do you think for a moment that you're going to take on, um, you know, J&J &J directly? You know, you have to figure out a way to do it. And recently in the past few years, I've gone off on my own and I've, I've bought the software SEMrush. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's an SEO oh, software. Yes. So um, I'm embarrassed to say as a former VP of marketing, I've never really appreciated this this software. So, you know, you think of SEO as I build my digital property and then I get my you know, my SEO words, which are the little worm in the hook and you put them in the water and you, you go get what you're going to get. But SEM rush gives you the market data. And so one of the things they tell you is how much will it cost you to get that word? 
right? So you can get these other words for pennies on the dollar, but you're going to spend $10 a person to get this other word that, you know, say J&J has. And it's a silly analogy, but it it's that sort of vigor doesn't happen a lot of times in startup companies or leaders. They, again, they're focused on the customer and they're not focused on, well, how am I different? How am I differentiated? Why would an investor, to your point about messaging, want to, you know, invest in me? And more importantly, why would J&J want to buy me later? They don't want to buy me for a product they already have or a market they're already in, right? That's not, why would they pay more? They're interested in doing things that give them into new categories or collapse the value chain or give them leverage on their on the assets they already have. And so when you can give that model, we, we were running an incubator, when you can give that model to people in an accelerator incubator format and get them to really spend time thinking about it, um, it can just save all sorts of downstream issues. Yeah, I think uh, that's a great way to show people kind of quantitatively, just using something like SEMrush, as to how you need to go about it differently. And I think mm -hmm. that's one of the one of the things that I know I find really fascinating about startups is that oftentimes. What needs to happen there is thinking about is, is flank, you need to come up with some flanking strategy. You'll never have the number of people, the number of dollars, that all the other things that the billion dollar global behemoths have ever. So, and that's yeah. not the goal, right? Yeah. That's not the goal at all. Um, so, we can't compete the same way and win. So, we have to kind of rethink about how we're doing it. And uh, I love your, your analogy about kind of, hey, if we went and diagnosed more people, then more people get help, as opposed to saying, how are we going to compete against a specific competitor? Um, because uh, direct, like trying to direct, you're not going to win. You try to directly compete against a Medtronic or a J&J &J or a McKesson. I mean. <laughs> and, and even big companies don't understand sometimes when they're doing that. I was, I was, uh trying to figure out how to tell the story without giving away. It was a cancer ablation technology and all the companies in there were big companies. And most of the companies that were in there were focused on technology, on how much heat is being delivered and all this. And the company that's a market share leader creates a, a, round, a round wound, a round ablation. And everyone else has sort of a football shape ablation. And they have convinced the community that that is the better way to go. And in, in the emotional, when a physician ablates cancer and they see that beautiful circle, they're like, ah, I got it all. But the reality is that if you're close to vessels and things like that, that the other shape is, is actually better. And so the, the technology leader doesn't participate in certain procedures because the round, the round wound can't get close to certain anatomy. Right. And so the other people haven't figured that out yet. And it, it, the science doesn't support it. It's it's an emotion and an imagery issue. And what these guys have done is, you know, the, the I'm guessing that this market had 450 sales reps and they've got 150 of them. So they've taken 60% market share. They've created the position that their 150 reps have. And then they've taken all those other reps to fight off that other smaller position. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Now, did, I don't know. I don't know the people that are the leader. I haven't talked to them about it. I, I'm assuming that this was a purposeful strategy and it's a company that has a reputation for good marketing. So I assume, I assume they did it on purpose, but the other people do not know what they've done to them. 
it's just amazing. I, uh, I find kind of human physiology infinitely fascinating and more and more so human psychology, like to your point about mm -hmm. behavior and what are the behaviors and are there some simpler things we can do as mm -hmm. opposed to trying to apply technology to every single problem that could be, you know, what's the, uh, it's like solving for the, you know, when you reduce fractions, right? You're looking for like the simplest form of the answer that gets you across the finish line or gets people to the next step or where, where it is that um, is best for them to go. And I think uh, it's interesting. I'm thinking about this, the circular ablation because I, uh, I was the VP of marketing and reimbursing education at Atricure. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, sure, yeah. Early, yeah, in their early days, kind of in their like, they were in the single digit millions and I, was with them through the IPO and to just kind of shy of 50 million before I jumped out. And uh, yeah, and when I joined, I asked three of my cardiac surgeon friends, I said, hey, who's the market leader? Who do you think's the market leader in surgical ablation? Um, and they said, Medtronic, of course. <laughs> the next person said that, and then the third person said, looked at me and went, I know you, so I'm, I'm pretty sure what I'm going to say is wrong, but it's what I think. And I'm like, okay. And it was the same answer. And I'm like, actually, Atricure, like dollar sales and unit sales in the United States was the market leader, but no one knew it. It's kind of mm -hmm. a fun spot to be in to figure out what that was, but it's not, it's not always all the journal. You, you need the credibility and you need the journal articles and you need all those foundational things that we understand on the clinical side. Um, but you also need to be able to say something meaningful and strongly and prove it um, to folks that can like this kind of circular idea that can mm -hmm. get you a very yeah. long way down the road. <laughs> well, and, and sometimes it's the, um, the the leadership of of the company. You know, I think I'm aging myself when I talk about Guiden, which is now owned by Boston Scientific. But in the day, Ginger Graham was the first female CEO of significance in that, if you remember mm -hmm. her, and every customer knew her personally. Every customer knew her personally. She knew every everything, everyone in the industry. And if her company uh, made a mistake, she got, you know, one of the things a brand is, right? A brand allows you to have more equity than your product is worth. That's the definition of a brand. And, and she was part of that brand. Um, in the early days of Boston Scientific, everyone knew... You know, um, John Abley and Pete Nicholson, they were, they knew everybody and, and physicians could pick up the phone and talk to them personally and they made it a priority. And so those, those things are, are different, right? That's, that's part of the piece that adds to the brand. So yeah, brand is, uh, yeah, there's so much value in brand equity. Yeah. Quick question. I could talk to you all day. Uh, um, quick question. What, if you had to recommend uh, kind of three books or three podcasts that like marketers and med device folks and healthcare folks should be digging into, what might those be? So I, podcast. I include my podcast. Well, so, so my podcast is about the business models of healthcare, which is healthcaredata.center. Um, and my podcast is uh, Chalk Talk Gym to get people together to to talk about these various problems from all across the the value chain because no one can know it all. It's just it's just too big. Mm -hmm. So that's 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 my approach. Um, but I I think I I listen to a lot of 
so I have YouTube premium and I follow a lot of physicists and scientists. And so I tend to spend a lot of time these days on information technology and just the raw sciences, as opposed to, you know, cause I'm trying to anticipate what's coming. And so, you know, I can look at pitch book and I can, I can, uh, you know, all the fierce, you know, whether it's fierce pharma, fierce medical devices, right. Becker's hospitals, so, you know, all those, those systems are fantastic. I listen to the MarTech podcast, which is uh, just totally tech. It has nothing to do with, with us, but it, it, it helps you understand how this is coming together because my belief is the consumer and the traditional healthcare coming together. In fact, my visual is that if you think of a traditional donut with a hole in the middle, and the healthcare is the whole and it's 18% of the economy. The rest of the people are trying to figure out how to get in and, and, you know, get some profits. And at the same time, we need them to come in because they're going to bring some strengths and, and system stuff that that's going to happen. So I've been watching the outside of the donut quite a bit and also following a lot of health policy and population health management techniques, which are a little different. That would be very different from, you know, if we had this conversation five years ago, I would have been doing a lot in robotics. I would have been doing a lot with CRISPR and, and gene editing and different things like that. So I sort of moved my, you know, understanding or my interests at, the, at this point in time, because I think that the whole idea of my podcast is that the entire healthcare value chain is a bunch of fragmented systems that need to sort of come together. And that's inevitable, right? Because if, if they don't do it themselves, the Amazons and the Oracles are going to force them to do it. And so it's time to sort to understand how that's going to transition and where best practices are. And, you know, I grew up, I, I came through finance operations engineering as a plant manager, as a sales rep in marketing. So I kind of came up through there. And one of the things that just, tickles me funny is the just in time Lego exercise that, you know, we did in the nineties is considered cutting edge and they're training people how to do just in time techniques and, and Kaizen techniques in hospitals. We're that far behind. And so I think, you know, we really need to get moving on the, on these, these sort of things. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So thanks for sharing those resources. Thank That's you. Fantastic. And how can people connect with you or get a hold of you? Um, so my website is jfjordan.com. It's my personal website where my blogs and different things. So I'm always reachable there. My research is on healthcaredata.center. And if anyone, you know, you can email me from, connect to me from, from healthcaredata.center. And from there, I can keep you updated on whatever areas interest you. So some people are just interested in medical devices. So I actually have on there every company a material company that's in the medical device, the biotech, what vertical they're in and all that. And I, I did that initially so that startup companies can sort of hit the ground running because to gather that data could take years and months. And so that's sort of how I, I started my, my website. Um, and so it's been going on now for about 10 years. That's tremendous. I did, I, I did spend some time on uh, healthcare data dot center last night and was shocked at how much great clear data you have that you've kind of dissected and laid out the, the marketplace in med tech and i know that most people most people don't appreciate so don't or even don't the us reimbursement your, system i i have no. a big presentation in there on how the entire us reimbursement system works but i've also moved it down to two slides 
So, you know, when a company, a startup company, a lot of times these startup companies are by people that don't have reimbursement experience. So how does it work? How does it connect? What do I have to pay attention to? You know, you could make a lot of mistakes. And so um, I have it up there. And I, I, I started teaching a course called Health Systems, which was given to me because at the time no one else was, was around to teach it. And I realized that when I looked at the history of it, that we were giving the course to either public policy or hospital administration people. And they, you know, the, what do they say? If you're a hammer, the world looks like a nail. And I realized what we were trying to do is, is teach these students the business models of the entire healthcare system. And so I um, also had at the time, I was uh, a um, senior program director of two of their master's programs. And so I had a, a healthcare committee that would set the curriculum. And these were the most brilliant brilliant people in the world, but they were brilliant in their, their piece of it, whether it's information, economics, whatever it was. And so I needed to pull together a common vision to capture all their brilliance. And so I just started it internally as a Google sites and then Google sites said they were going to go down. And I um, decided to make healthcare data dot center for one for my faculty to use, for my students to use, and then the local startups in Pittsburgh when I was the CEO of a nonprofit venture firm here, um, they needed data. And you know, I had someone said to me, Jim, every time I come to you, you have the data I need. Why don't you put it out there? And so I used it as sort of my Wikipedia kind of thing. And I actually have two full-time people that work with me keeping it up. And it's actually a lot of work. Yeah. Yes, I've, I've had websites launched and run and it is, <laughs> it's quite yeah. a bit of work to do it to do it well do it well so yes yeah i applaud you on that it was it's an amazing resource it's an amazing resource so uh any closing comments anything i didn't ask you that you were hoping i would have asked no it was perfect thank you very much i appreciate all, right. all that you do yeah well thank you so much for um joining us today and that's it for the message engineer podcast and like subscribe and all that good stuff and we'll see you next time thank, thank you, you so much. take care <laughs>